This Institute of Ideas podcast is called Tax Wars and Equality and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2016 at the Barbican in London. So thanks for coming to Tax Wars and Economic Inequality. In the last few years, economic inequality has been sort of a major talking point in, in advanced economies. It's been the, the prison for which we've seen lots of political events explained, from Trump to Brexit to young people joining ISIS. Economic inequality seems to be advanced as a, a reason to explain all of this. And then at the same time, there's increased concern over uh, the role that tax plays in terms of are corporations paying enough tax? Is the top rate of tax high enough? All these questions. So I hope in this session we'll explore... First of all, what is economic inequality? Uh, what do we mean by it? Why does it matter? And what role would tax and tax evasion play in economic inequality or addressing it if it was needed to be addressed? So I've got four speakers here. They're each going to speak for five minutes, and then we'll go straight out to the audience. So first we have uh, Dr. Yaron Brook, who's the executive director of the Ayn Rand Institute and the co-author of the uh, recent book, Equal is Unfair. Uh, next we'll have Stefan Stern, who's the director of the High Pay Centre, uh, which is a London-based think tank which looks at the issues of top pay. Uh, following that, we'll have Daniel Benemy, who is uh, a journalist and author of the book Ferrari's Fall in Defence of Economic Growth. And then last, we'll have Dr. Faiza Shaheen, who's an economist and the director of the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. Yeah. Thank you. So... Um, Inequality has become this massive issue that everybody seems to be concerned about, and it seems to serve as an explanation for almost every challenge that we face around us. I don't get it. Inequality should matter exactly zero. Inequality has no economic significance, has no moral significance. There are a lot of problems in our economies. The poor should be able to rise up easier than they do today into middle classhood. The middle class is stagnating and the economy is not growing. And yes, some people who are wealthy are wealthy because they've manipulated the political system in their favor. In other words, they are stealing their wealth instead of creating their wealth. All of those are distinct, real economic problems. Not one of them has anything to do with inequality. Most, most economies uh, where there is true equality are dirt poor. Nobody wants that. Most economies that are free have high income inequality. Because indeed, inequality is a feature of freedom. It's not a bug, to use computer terminology. It's a feature. When you allow people who are very different, and all you have to do is look around this room to see how different we really are, when you allow people who are different to be free, they produce at different levels. They create different things. Some are lazy and they don't work hard. Some are really hardworking, but don't produce anything that is of value to other people or great value to other people. Some choose to be teachers like me, and we know we're going to be poor. <laughs> and, be, and that's because we can only reach a certain number of people every year. Others choose to go into technology and affect the lives of billions of people. Why is Bill Gates worth $70 billion? Because he's created trillions of dollars of wealth in the world. Freedom equals inequality. The only way to achieve equality is to reduce freedom. The only way to achieve equality 
is to take by force from those who produce and create and give to those who don't. That is morally offensive and economically stupid. And it, would, it, it is destructive in, in every sense. Uh, now, there's also this question of taxes, which is related but, and unrelated. But when we tax the very wealthy, we're committing two sins. We are extracting wealth that would be invested if it wasn't taxed and given to a bunch of bureaucrats to waste. It could otherwise be invested in production, in job creation, in economic growth. And second, we are penalizing the most productive members in our society, which I find morally offensive. The way you create vast amounts of wealth is by creating value for other people. Bill Gates, again, is worth 70, 80, 90 billion dollars because he created trillions of dollars worth of wealth for all of us. He changed the world for the better for every single human being on the planet. That's an achievement we should celebrate, not something we should penalize with extraordinarily high uh, tax rates. And I just have to say something about corporate taxes, and I'm sure we'll get to it again. The only economically rational corporate tax rate is zero. Corporate taxes are a hidden sales tax. Corporations don't exist. They're legal entities. Corporations pass on all the taxes that they pay to consumers and to employees. It's both a consumption tax and an employment tax that's hidden. It just doesn't make any sense. If you want to tax, tax the distributions of corporations, dividend, capital gains, um, but don't, don't, don't place a hidden tax on consumers. Don't hit, place a hidden tax on, on employees. It, it, it's, it's not their fault that, that we all think that corporations are this anonymous entity, evil because they dare to make money, that we, can, that, that we can raise taxes on. You're not raising taxes on the capitalist when you raise taxes on corporations. Not that I think that's a good thing, but you're really raising it on workers and consumers. So uh, uh, my view is inequality is not a problem. All the solutions to inequality create bigger problems, uh, and those problems are primarily they hold back poor people, they, they uh, oppress economic growth, and they create more cronyism than would exist if we just left inequality alone. Well, uh, <laughs> we've had such a charming delightful, friendly conversation until now. Now I have to disagree a bit with you. Anyway, we'll stick to the issues. Clearly, like the two ladies shouting at each other from different buildings, we're arguing from different premises. Um, and thank you. Uh, we're, um, we're, we're here we are in old Europe, uh, as, as, you, as you know. And, and, and Europe, in a sense, we do have a, a slightly different take, a different perspective on, on the concept, on the notion of inequality and the debate about inequality. Perhaps one thing to deal with straight away is not sure anyone there might be in the room is really going to argue for inequality of uh, equality of outcome. Uh, this is a traditional debate in Canard, you might say, but anyway, it's worth saying in this context. Uh, I think people accept that. You know, look, I'm five foot six. I've just I've had to get used to that. You know, it's not fair. But you know, there are bigger people, the taller people than me, and that's just the way it is. And and we don't have equal outcomes in society inevitably. The, re the question, as I suppose, is the degree to which inequality really does harm us. And what's uh, and Yaron's absolutely right that the interesting shift in the debate over recent years is that you know, unfortunately, perhaps from 
Jaren's point of view, it's, his position is actually a slightly lonelier one than it was even five or ten years ago, because all sorts of supposedly conservative or mainstream or orthodox conventional voices in economics, be, it would be great to hear Jaren's take on this, why this has happened, um, are, who perhaps you would have in the past described, depending on who you are, as you know, the running dogs of neoliberalism or something, or uh, the free market champions anyway, have started to say, actually, yes, we are really worried about this, this thing called inequality. Distinguished people like the World Economic Forum, as it says in the brochure, uh, mainstream economists at the IMF and the OECD saying that, that again, rather differently, suggesting that inequality is actually inefficient. Uh, in this country, we have this chronic low productivity problem. We ostensibly have low claimant count unemployment, and yet we also actually have, obviously, lots of people working part-time who would rather be working full-time. We have lots of people in bogus self-employment. Uh, wage rates have been flat for a decade. And there are lots of reasons for the June 23rd vote on Brexit and referendum, but part of it almost certainly seems to be a sense of uh, frustration, anger at inequality as it's experienced around the country, and particularly away from the, from the Barbican. And, uh, and the plush southeast of England. Um, so inequality has real impact. Um, but we, we obviously come from a different tradition uh, in this country, um, which is sometimes called welfareism, or the growth of the welfare state, going back to Lloyd George, uh, pensions and social protections, the great um, transformation in 1945. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher obviously represented the first significant challenge to that. We can have another debate another time, the extent to which we're still in a post-Thatcherite or still dealing with the Thatcherite settlement in terms of uh, the, the challenge to the, the post-war vision. But nonetheless, all the tension, all the uh, uncertainty uh, and happiness in the debate revolves around this question of are we too unequal and is it damaging us, is it harming us? Uh, and Trump clearly is feeding off it from his own point of view, from his own political perspective, feeding off uh, uh, grievance, unhappiness, sense of uh, anger at Wall Street, at the corporations, at uh, CEOs and their massive pay packages. So it's a, so it's a, a volatile and shifting uh, ground. I mean, Yaron's contribution is extremely helpful because it, it, it forces us to think a bit hard about some of these things that we take for granted, and it, it is the outcomes that, that matter. Uh, that's why, to me, it's particularly striking that so much of mainstream economics is now moving onto this ground that says we should be worried about this. It's actually harming the economy. We're, we're underperforming. Uh, the jobs we're creating aren't good enough. Uh, there's something wrong. Uh, income and wealth inequality being entrenched through the generation, through inheritance. We're actually getting more unequal. And the majority view seems to be that this is a bad thing, something we should worry about. But uh, we can debate it all now. Uh, well, I've just got five minutes, so I want to uh, just say two things. The first thing is that I am passionately in favour of equality, and I think it's really, really important that we pursue equality as a goal. The second thing I want to say is that I'm passionately against equality, and I really think we should resist the drive to equality because it's really, really negative. Now, I can see, I'm sure Tom is getting worried, probably thinks I've gone a bit mad, but I think a lot of the discussion is of that character. In other words... People are not really listening to what's being said. I mean, I think slightly different. Yaron and Stefan have, to a degree, uh, engaged with the real discussion. But very often, people are using the term equality and inequality without saying what they mean, because I think we're not going to have a sensible discussion uh, unless we understand what it means. 
And in that sense, maybe you, it was a rhetorical flourish when you said, I don't get it, probably just a rhetorical thing, but we do need to get it. We do need to understand what's really being discussed and what is the drive behind this discussion. And we need to not understand or specify what we mean by equality and inequality, uh, but also how it links to freedom. I mean, Yaron has got his particular conception, other people on the panel uh, will probably have their conceptions, but you know, how does it relate to freedom? How does it relate to economic growth? All of these things are quite complicated, and I think the problem is that very often we're kind of replaying in a very garbled sense a kind of 20th century discussion. We, we assume that it's a debate about socialism versus capitalism, when in fact I would argue, if you look at the debate now, it's not a debate of socialism versus capitalism or the free market against uh, socialism or however you want to put it. There's something quite different going on. And it's really important to understand the dynamics behind it. And I think, hopefully, through our engagement with the audience, we can get to grips with what's really going on. I mean, just to say a bit more about my particular position on this, I mean, as Tom mentioned at the beginning, uh, I've written a book called Ferraris for All, which, in a sense, from the title, you can see is an egalitarian book because it's saying that everyone should have access to prosperity. So, in a sense, it's arguing for a particular form of equality, and in fact, is very much in line with an old socialist tradition. I mean, fortunately, a tradition now long past, but there was a very strong socialist tradition of saying, we want to abolish scarcity, which didn't just mean we don't want people just to live on the absolute breadline. You know, we want everyone, we want to aspire to and move towards a society where everyone can have what they need. There's no problem of material scarcity. So in that sense, uh, I would say I'm you know, very much for equality and very much an egalitarian. Having said that, I'm very much against the current drive which Stefan referred to, which people refer to it as a drive towards equality, but I think it's wrong. It's just not, it's not that, because if you listen to what's being said by all these technocrats like the IMF and the OECD and the governor of the Bank of England, uh, if you look carefully at what they say, they almost always add a caveat, which Stefan did, that they say, well, of course, we're not arguing for equality of outcome. That's not what we're doing. Uh, and indeed, they're not. That's true, they're not. What they're arguing about, what they see as a problem, is extreme inequality. That's the way they pose it. And what their solution is, and I think this is highly problematic, uh, is to hold things back. They say, well, look, there's, there's the super rich. They are, in this view, they are kind of uh, skimming money off the top of society, and that is completely unreasonable. There's the poor people who are really suffering. They make some kind of very direct connection between the two, which I don't think is a legitimate thing to do. It's not a simple zero-sum game. But the conclusion they draw, almost invariably, is that we have to make do with, le with less. And it's often tied in with the whole kind of green discussion of climate change and, and all the rest of it. They'll bring that into their argument to say, well, everyone has to make do with less. And to the extent these people uh, believe in uh, equality, any kind of equality, it's actually equality of sacrifice. So Warren Buffett, who happens to be one of the richest people in the world, and Barack Obama have publicly discussed this. So they say they believe in equality. They do believe in a form of equality, but their form of equality is that everyone should make do with less. So Warren Buffett says, yes, I'll make do with a bit less. But the payoff is the ordinary person in the street also has to make do with less. And that kind of argument for equality, equality of sacrifice, I think is entirely negative and it should be really resisted. So what I could, should, would conclude here is that let's have a debate about the discussion as it exists in the early 21st century. 
Let's not assume that we're replaying the 20th century discussion. Let's get to grips with what's really being said today. So much I could say, but let me just stick to my five <laughs> minutes and I'll, I'll, maybe we'll get a chance to disagree more um, as the panel goes on. Um, so 10 years ago, uh, I was trying to push a think tank I was working for at the time to do more work on inequality. So this was, yeah, I think, yeah, where are we? Pre-crisis, uh, pre-financial crisis. And um, the senior economist at the time said to me, Pfizer, no one cares about inequality. It's only growth and poverty that matters. The only reason you care is you're a nice person and, you know, it's, it's fine. Anyway, and a lot of mainstream economists felt that way. I mean, fast forward 10 years and it is a real dramatic change. And I think that's genuinely because we've recognised some of the some of the ways in which inequality is so important. I agree that sometimes a conversation can be too simplistic. I think there's times when we talk about inequality, we're talking about inequality in terms of inequality is a bad thing for some people because simply the idea that 85 people, or now this year I think it went down to something like 62 people, have as much wealth as half the population makes some people just feel uncomfortable. And, and that's fine, and, and it, it, it presents as a moral issue. For others, um, inequality is almost like a litmus test for how the economy is doing and who it's working for. And I think when you have these high concentrations, so when we talk about inequality today, and we're talking about an inequality where we've seen a kind of the 99% of us have become more equal, but the 1%, we've got this kind of runaway 1%. And that has particularly pernicious effects. But, I mean, for some people, just that captures for them that inequality is a measure of some underlying issues in the economy. So it, often they talk about financial markets and how they're working in asset markets, etc. So the problem there is less inequality, but less inequality and more the issues that underlie that. But for others, and I think the evidence is increasing here, inequality in itself is the issue um, and is the issue we should be focusing on. And, and what they've done, and, and there's a growing evidence on this, is that they've looked at things like social mobility um, and other social and economic ills, debt, for instance, and said, um, sure, there's a correlation between this and growing inequality, but that doesn't mean there's causation. Um, but then they've started to do some of the digging and they found some of those interconnections that exist. So why is it that some organisations like the IMF and the OECD and others have come round to this way of thinking when 10 years ago they were telling me that this is ridiculous? I mean, it's because they are looking at that evidence. These people are not necessarily uh, lefty. Lefties that have a moral issue, they actually just think it's undermining economic performance um, and society. I, wanna, I don't have a lot of time, so let me just focus on something that's really struck me um, recently, which is how inequality is socially corrosive. Um, Robert Frank, who's an economist at Cornell and wrote this great book, and, and in it he talks about an experiment where they went out and they asked individuals um, if they would go for a 4,000 square foot home in a neighborhood of where everyone else had 6,000 foot, or a 3,000 square foot in a zone where most people had 2,000 square. So a smaller house, but you had the biggest house, essentially. Um, and perhaps you won't be surprised to know that most people opted for the smaller house as long as it was bigger than everyone else's. Um, and so, so the issues around, I think this is the thing with inequality that we often miss, is how it connects to us and how it brings out some of our kind of animal instincts, some of our um, ways in which we measure our own progress against others. 
Now, what this, I think one of the things that this experiment showed us is, of course, you could say it's just people are just greedy, this is the worst in human beings, or you could say it's about this rat race that we're all involved in. Um, and for me, it's about inequality and individualism and all of those things. But I think what's become really clear to us in the last sort of couple of years, really, is how the politics of inequality, how that individual um, need for more versus others is playing out into our politics. Um, and of course we see that here and we see that um, across the world, in fact. Um, and there's two ways in which um, the evidence is building up. So one is the idea about a lack of empathy. So more unequal societies, there's less, less empathy between um, the richest and everyone else. It's because our lives don't connect anymore. So even in London, where, for instance, like I grew up and I'm really proud, I think we mix loads, but actually, no, the evidence doesn't show that. More and more, we only mix with those in our own group and in our own socioeconomic group. So we don't have a very good understanding of what it's like for people on low incomes. We don't know anyone, and we're just not mixing as much as we used to, and that's, and that's affecting our empathy. So when we talk about the links then to tax, um, why is it that rich people and corporate tax... Ta uh, corporations want to hide their tax more, perhaps it's because they don't really feel like they need to give back more to society. Perhaps it's easier to label people as lazy when you don't know them, right? When you don't understand the struggles that they have. Um, and the other big thing, of course, is anger. Some people look towards the top, some people look towards the top and they feel angry with the richest, and some people look at others, whether it be immigrants, whether it be other poor people, and they get angry with them. And that can often be manipulated by the media. Um, I have to finish it there, but I really think that that aspect of inequality, and, and there's many aspects of inequality that show now are, are very important in terms of the economics and the politics, that, that way in which it's affecting our society is so crucial not just to understand what is happening now, but in terms of how we're going to build a better society that can deal with climate change. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, so we're going to go out to the audience now for questions, contributions. Uh, thank you. Um, on Thursday evenings after school, I used to help my mother with the PAYE and national insurance for the men in my father's factory. Tax was child's play. 1972, my construction company had the visit from the VAT man, who explained VAT was not going to apply to new build, but it did to refurbishment. Most of it was a, mi uh, a mixture. Since when this evil import from the EU has been a terrible waste of time, non-productive time for business, and it's been by being taxing the poor, people with no income are paying, paying this evil, no, VAT, which is most unfair. It's on everything from soap and toilet rolls to dog biscuits. Children are paying it on ice cream. That is where the unfairness is. It's, it's not equality of sacrifice. It's an unfair tax on those of low income, which is holding them back. So I think uh, Daniel is right to say that usually this debate is linked to other issues such as climate change, but I want to push it back into its philosophical roots. So I have a question for Stefan and for Faiza. So Robert Nozick gave the famous example of Will Chamberlain becoming very, very rich because thousands of individuals decide to give some part of their money to see him play basketball. The equivalent today could be the author of Harry Potter or Wayne Rooney becoming super rich because many of us decide that it's worth our time and money paying something to read the book or watch them play football. So do you think that there is a problem at its essence if Wayne Rooney or the author of Harry Potter has one million times more money than I do? Thank you. 
you touched on low productivity, um, but we've also got very high employment rates in Britain. And if you compare that to Europe, where actually there's higher productivity, but lower, lower employment, higher unemployment, is this the phenomenon of hysteresis? Um, which kind of, so if we were to have um, high unemployment in this country, we might actually see higher productivity. Um, also, Paul Krugman wrote uh, in the Wall Street Journal about how the devaluation of the pound is potentially uh, representative of the Dutch disease, where the city of London, which has attracted a great deal of foreign direct investment, has potentially crowded out investment elsewhere in Britain because um, due to the high pound and overvaluation of the pound, you have other industry not being as attractive. Um, the reason I say these two things is maybe because they're not related to inequality. Um, on the other point of wealth, um, you can create some inc um, interesting positions if you look at wealth inequality. The 20th percentile um, in terms of wealth in Israel is infinitely, poor, infinitely more poor than the 80th percentile in Israel. I have high negative net wealth because I'm a student and I've taken on student debt. But as I'm sure the crowd could probably see from me stood here, I haven't exactly got it particularly badly off. So, <laughs> I'm actually dancing around the subject I want to point to, which is about measurement. I've talked about productivity and wealth. Is inequality maybe not the right measurement? But as Deirdre McCloskey talks about, maybe we should look at prosperity and quite how we measure prosperity. And if we start considering that, maybe we get to the conclusion Johan Norberg gets who's at the Cato Institute, which is actually we're living in a golden age in many ways, and that the poorest today, in some ways, have it actually very well off. Thank you. Okay, so two quick points for, for Yaron. One of them is about, uh, you talk about value and being paid for the value you have. What, may, what is different between that and, if you object to it, so people of different genders or different races being paid the different amounts for exactly the same job? Why is that a morally different issue for you, if it is? Um, and secondly, you talked about it being immoral to charge corporation tax. You said this corporation is sort of an artificial entity that's not really a, a thing, it's just a grouping. Yet, you then gave the example of Bill Gates creating value by virtue of being in a certain position in a corporation, and value could be distributed in other ways within that corporation, which wouldn't have given him all that money, and it would have given it to different people with different roles. If you think the corporation is artificial for tax purposes, why is that not artificial for distribution purposes? Take the last one. Can I just ask um, Pfizer? You, you, you say that inequality produces social division. Well, I've been looking at some figures for that, and the, the income gap for Britain historically, was at its all-time narrowest between 1977 and 1979. I can tell you now, those of us who are old enough to have lived through that, it wasn't very cohesive at all. <laughs> so how do you explain that? Uh, and secondly, how do you divorce what you said about those looking up like that? How do you, how do you, how do you not call that envy? Is anything any of our panelists want to comment? Sure. Yeah. Uh, let me first comment on some of the, uh, what the other panelists said. Two things, I'd say. Uh, the experiment. I mean, first of all, I think if you'd run the experiment 20, 30 years ago, you would have gotten a different result in America. I think America has changed for the worse. I think we should criticize people for making those kind of statements. I think it is, it is horrible that people are willing to take a loss in order to be more equal with other people. So they're willing to have less benefit just to be more like everybody else. I think that's a sign of decay, social decay, and I think we should be very worried about that. In America, 
inequality was never an issue. And the reason uh, inequality was never an issue is, is people did not resent people who made wealth because they recognized that the way you make wealth is by providing real value. Uh, it's only in recent times that that has started changing as America's become more like Europe. Europe historically has always resented wealth because if you think about history, America doesn't really have history. Europe does. And in Europe's history, wealth was also always associated with aristocracy. In other words, you became an aristocrat because you were good at stealing. And so wealth was always associated with theft. So we resented wealth because we associated with people who were good at stealing. In America, wealth was always associated with wealth creation, money making, additive. Uh, so that, that, that's just a point. I, I mean, I would, I would criticize the people who answered the questions in the way they did, not try to structure society around the fact that people are envious and resentment of, of their fellow man. Second, about why the economists take these ideas now seriously suddenly. Look, we've got real economic problems in the West. Uh, economic growth is low. Everything that was the panelists have said is all true. And conventional economists, the basically the mainstream economics, uh, the, 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 uh, slightly on the right or slightly on the left, it doesn't matter, have no explanation for this. And they're, they're searching, they're desperate. And they find some correlations. And uh, it's easy to attribute causation to correlations because that's the easy way out. But the fact is that they, and I've ch I challenge Paul Krugman, I'll challenge George Stiglitz, I'll challenge any of these Nobel Prize winners in economics to point to one economic theory, any economic theory, that connects any of these problems to the issue of the gap between the rich and the poor, to a measure, any kind of measure of economic inequality. There is no economic theory that relates the two. And indeed, I would say that the causality goes the other way around. The more we attempt to reduce inequality by helping those at the bottom rise up through things like minimum wages and by regulating corporations and taxing them, the more of these economic problems we're going to get. If you create minimum wages, what you're doing is creating a permanently unemployable segment of the population because they can never produce at that level, so they become permanently unemployable, which is what's going on in the inner cities in the United States. As I said before, if you tax and regulate businesses because you resent their wealth, then you get less investment income and you get less economic growth. So all of the ills that, are, that, 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 that we are suffering from economically today are made worse by these bogus attempts to reduce inequality. Indeed, the opposite is true. If you want economic growth, it's easy. We know exactly how to do it. Margaret Thatcher got economic growth in this country going. Ronald Reagan got economic, e economic growth going in the 1980s. And even those were timid, uh, timid relatively small attempts. Uh, you deregulate, you cut taxes, you get government off the backs of corporations and off of businesses, and the economies of the West would flourish and rise dramatically. Uh, everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. Al almost all economists know this. But somehow, this is politically untenable, by both by the right and the left. You don't see, there's no division here between the right and the left. They all agree that, uh, about the status quo. Yeah. Well, first of all, a couple of things that I think we shouldn't do, and then uh, what I think is the dynamic behind this discussion of extreme inequality, which is really what it is. I think, first of all, we should be absolutely clear that for better or for worse, 
uh, we in Britain and indeed America are not a free market. In fact, nothing remotely like a free market. Uh, and I mean, Yaron is uh, nodding his head and perhaps agrees, but at the same time, a lot of what he says seems to assume there's some kind of free market. Uh, I mean, I, I looked up the figures, uh, IMF figures, you know, we can dispute the odd billion here or there, but <laughs> according to the IMF's estimates, uh, uh, government spending in the US this year is meant to be round about $6.6 trillion. That's £5.4 trillion. Pounds. So for those not good at maths, and hopefully I'll get it right here, it's uh, 5.4 million million pounds. So 12 noughts after the 5, 5.4. So there's a huge, huge amount of state intervention, uh, which public spending is a kind of indicator of, even in the US, which is held up as a kind of model by many people, as a model of the free market. So I think the reality uh, is not one of the free markets. It's a very much more messy reality with... Some, you know, some market activity, a huge amount of state intervention, very, very messy and very problematic. Despite the rhetoric of Reagan and Thatcher, I think they absolutely failed to tackle the long-term problems uh, facing their economy. So whether we're a supporter of what we think of as a free market or against it, I think we should be really upfront. There is no free market anywhere, really. Uh, certainly no sizable state. Uh, in the I'll world. just say I agree with everything you just said, absolutely. Okay. Uh, fairness, maybe something you'll disagree with. Yeah. Fairness, I think all of us, I think on both sides of the debate, or either, any side of the debate, we should avoid talking about fairness. Because I think there's absolutely no way, we could be here for a million years, we would never resolve the debate about fairness. So one side can say, well, it's not fair uh, that Bill Gates uh, gets so much money when so many people are poor. And so other people say Bill Gates has created all this money, it's not fair, it should be taken away from him. Fairness is not a useful category to understand these things. Finally, what explains the drive to this obsession with extreme inequality? I think part of it is the kind of economic slowdown, but I think that's only a small part of it. I think it's much more a sense among the elite. It is, you know, the IMF, the Bank of England, uh, leading politicians as well. It's a sense that they don't really, they can't control society. They've lost control. they don't really have contact with society. So it's really an attempt to try to reconnect with society, to try and get some kind of popular support, to kind of you know, connect with people, but they're miserably failing because they don't have the ideas, they don't have the politics, they don't have the economic solutions. So despite the attempt to connect with people, they're not managing to do it. Um, so um, to the gentleman about the, the superstars, there's... The there's a severe possibility that you're actually better at football than Wayne Rooney. I mean, you know, you, 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 I'm joking. The, um, <laughs> uh, look, I think in a way this is a, this is a proof of the problem in the so-called efficient markets hypothesis that occasionally some people do seem to earn fantastic numbers. And the superstar example is always quite striking, quite interval, interesting, but I'm not sure how much it really helps us in the general. What, the thing I do as a day job at the high pay centres, we look at... CEOs of public corporations, what really infuriates people is that often very relatively ordinary people, bureaucrats, administrators, point to Wayne Rooney or J.K. Rowling and they say, I too am a superstar. Look at me, I got to the top of this corporation. I therefore deserve an enormous salary because that's what people like me should get. But they're not necessarily entrepreneurial or great wealth creators. They're administrators of bureaucracies. So I, I think the superstar example is, is always quite interesting but it's not necessarily helpful. 
And to the, the very well-dressed student, where is he? <laughs> very well-dressed. Um, <laughs> um, I think you raised an important point, and this is obviously a problem that uh, economists and statisticians struggle with in terms of you know, inflation and value and price, because obviously the phones we use, the computers we have, are both vastly better than the ones we used to have and also much cheaper. So something odd is happening about prosperity and wealth. Right? So you raise an interesting question, but then I come back perhaps to what Daniel was concluding on, these relativities are noticed and seem to matter. And, and the, that's even the problem with FAIR, you know? I, I expect everyone in this room has at one time or another protested that's not FAIR and felt upset about it. So I, I, I can agree with you that it might be a vague, loose uh, uh, term, but it's also something that human beings seem to relate to and understand. I had a bar of chocolate which I was proposing to share with my daughter and she snapped it in half and seemed to take what in some households in ours too is known as the bigger half, which is also <laughs> not statistically correct. And I said to her, well, that's not fair. And she said, well, it's fair for me. <laughs> it's just not fair for you. I mean, so that is the problem with fair, which I accept, and yet I don't think we can get away from it. Yeah, I mean, I, I just always find it really breathtaking that people will argue that after 40 years of... Of, of the type of economy we've had where markets have prevailed, where, okay, it's not quite free markets, of course not, but in which we've allowed markets to, uh, to dominate um, and which has brought us a financial crisis, has brought us um, the type of political problems we see right now, side of problems. And to ask to have more of that, I, I always find it quite breathtaking. Um, I think in terms of... Um, sort of representation and why politicians are, are failing in terms of talking about this thing. I mean, I, I've just finished doing some work for the BBC on um, represent, political representation, right? So, I mean, it's really funny. Theresa May said the other day in her speech that we're, we're going to be the party of the working class. 50% of the Conservative Party is privately educated. Now, it's quite cheeky when... I mean, I'm not to say, like, of course, there are, there are people that are privately <coughs> educated and they are... They tend to be overrepresented, but you can't act like you know what is happening with other parts of society when you haven't necessarily been, you're not attuned to them. I mean, that's why they're failing, because again and again, we have political representation that doesn't reflect the people and the population. If we had a fairer distribution of people um, at the top, then we would have very different decisions, I think, that were made. Um, in terms of measurement, I think there was a good point made about wealth and measurement. I, you know, I agree that it's, it's really tricky in terms of measures of inequality, and that's partly links back to the issue of, um, you know, different types of inequality are more corrosive. I think there's definitely something in that. We haven't done enough research on that. Um, we should still be measuring wealth inequality because we know that wealth inequality, of course, the other extreme when people are getting in debt because they're buying a big house, maybe, and we might not see um, as so problematic. But the, the point is when people are having high levels of wealth that they can then give to the next generation, and that creates huge, I'm going to call it unfairness, but intergenerational inequalities that people don't like. I mean, is it right that the Duke of Westminster left his son all that money, wasn't taxed? You know, has he done anything to earn it? You know, it's completely hereditary. And, um, you know, we have to ask questions about that. I think it's, I think it's fair enough. Um, in terms of the, I mean, I think it's a really important point, um, the 77 to 79, and, and was it very socially cohesive? Look, when we talk about addressing inequality, yeah, we're not asking for absolute equality. I think it's fair enough. 
I think my husband would disagree about Rooney getting paid more as a Man United supporter. But um, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's fair enough. Some people should get paid more. Um, but how much more? Now, when in economics as well, like when there are societal costs to what an individual gets, then that's when we start having this conversation about whether we need to tax and redistribute and, and what we need to do about that. Now, when globally, today, we have a panel of two foreign to against. Globally, that's not the conversation on inequality. Actually, may, actually, when you look at who's agreeing that inequality is a problem now, it's generally the case that most economists will see it in a problem in one form or another. And so it, it, it does have societal cost. And in that case, and I think we have to be doing more to intervene. And there's no problem with that. And there's no problem with that because of two reasons. We are... I mean, I, I've just been looking at the stats and... We are really failing the public right now. We're really failing to allow people to use their talents um, and, and to rise up. We are really failing in that way. Um, and we are also really failing to invest in our public services. Some of the things that we created, which were the best things this country have ever done, like the NHS, um, is, are severely undermined now because we, are, we care less about each other, and that is linked to inequality. I'm not saying it's the only thing. Um, so, for me, sure, maybe it wasn't so socially cohesive in 77 to 79. I don't know enough about the specifics about that time and the inequality, what inequality looked like. What I can say now about the ine what inequality looks like now is this difference between, you know, it's really hard being the only woman on a panel. Why is it that I so often am the only woman on a panel, the only person from a state school? I can't tell you how fed up I am of this. My mum has had a heart transplant last week, and I'm still here, and I'm still talking, because often I'm the only one. And why is that? It's because people from my background aren't given the opportunities. They can't come up and speak, and that's, that's not the kind of society I want to live in. And that's what the question is here. That's what the central question is. What kind of society do we want to live in? Do we want to live in one that's more equal, that gives more people opportunities, that really looks at the evidence and, the and, and really understands why it is that inequality is important. Thank you. I wanted to ask Dr. Brooke about this magical thing called wealth creation mm -hmm. and what percentage he thought of serious wealth owners around the world, meaning at least a billion and more, aligned with your idea of wealth creators. And as a secondary to that, let's think about the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers own an Coke. enormous amount. Coke. Coke. We, love, we love that confusion here. We like it. I know you do. Uh, the Koch brothers, um, and of course of Donald Trump, both of whom are inheritors of a very, very significant <coughs> kind. And as a third thought while we're about it... The way in which the Koch brothers, huge inheritors and owners of a private company, therefore not subject to the restrictions of mar marketplace analysis, enable people around America to say that taxes on the rich are wicked and regulation of corporate performance is a very wicked thing and we should do without it. So they pay, for instance, the Cato Institute, which you talked about. 
Talk a bit about that. Sure. Hi, I'd like to uh, address the lady on the right's um, last point, but what type of society would we like to see? And I think you said, uh, would like a more equal or a more unequal one? And my argument would be, the type of society that I want is a rights-respecting society. And this is not what your type of politics is going to bring about, because in order to, you know, raise up people from the you know, lower classes, you know, poor people and so forth, you have to bring other people down, from who, the, the rich down. You ha that's the only possible way. You have to take wealth. And even you yourself say that it's going to be based on redistribution of wealth. But redistribution of wealth is going to be theft. I mean, you're going to have to steal money to do it. And stealing is rights violating, okay? It's evil, okay? And then after that, the man right up in the top corner. Thanks. Um, a comment, perhaps a, a question on the, the contemporary way that inequality is being discussed. And when I say contemporary, I mean the last sort of two weeks, two months and so on, and, and the relationship, relation of it to uh, the, the discussion about populism, which has been featuring throughout, throughout the weekend. I mean, there's a strange thing about inequality, which people may challenge me, but I, I think if you look at it, there's always been a, a mismatch between the amount of discussion about inequality and the concern about it and what's actually happening to inequality uh, in terms of it getting worse or, or getting, uh, getting increased or decreasing. Because historically, briefly, in the 1980s, there was a big increase in inequality and no one really was talking about it. Uh, since the 1980s, equality has flattened out. And in fact, the, the World Bank... Uh, you know, recently made the point that in industrialized countries, inequality has actually been narrowing. I think Britain has oh, been narrowing true. more than anywhere over the last 10 years. And yet the discussion about inequality, the perception of inequality, is sky high. So there's this strange mismatch between the discussion about it in the, particularly in the last, increasingly in the last five years, within the elite and what's actually going on the ground. Now, to me, looking at that perception today, I think this discussion about populism, I think is quite interesting because... The knee-jerk and, and quite legitimate reason people are giving for why is it so many people are supporting Trump, supporting all these populist parties, why is it so many people, you know, perhaps uh, voted Brexit, although we'll leave that to the next discussion here. <laughs> but uh, a, a knee-jerk re reaction to say it's because of inequality, that people feel that inequality and unfairness is what motivated them to vote. And that's what the establishment has jumped on. I think that's why Theresa May and others are making these statements saying, you know, we're going to put inequality and fairness at the top of our agenda because they feel, in response to the rise of, uh, of anti-establishment voices, that they're losing touch. The ironic thing, to conclude, the, the ironic thing is that the research that's done on why people are supporting Trump and others is that it isn't for economic issues or issues of inequality. There's some research which people will have looked at, but it's well worth uh, those who haven't, by Inglehart and Norris, which has looked at what is it that is driving people to vote for or, or support populist movements. And they say it's not economic, it's cultural. It's issues of identity, it's issues of gender, it's issues of uh, environment, all sorts of what they call cultural issues, not economic ones. So the irony is the establishment's jumping on the issue of inequality as being the problem that it's out of touch of society, precisely at a time whenever there's much bigger cultural things which are uh, uh, undermining, in a sense, the coherence of society. So it's a self-defeating focus at the moment, which I think is quite ironic. I mean, as an economist, I always want to have more discussion about economics, but actually the discussion about economic inequality is actually missing the point as to what's going on in terms of social trends today and in terms of what's happening in society. There, there are two distinct issues uh, here, um, and we're mixing them up slightly. One is the inequality between individuals, and when we look at that, then we're looking at fairness, we're looking at 
Um, kindness, we're looking at whether it's just right for uh, someone to earn, I was just working it out as we're talking, over a thousand times more than I get and probably therefore on interest spending more in interest in five minutes than I earn, earn in a year. That, that, there is that debate that, that we need to have. But we shouldn't cloud that discussion or we shouldn't let that discussion cloud a different discussion which is the structural inequality between the wealth that can be acquired through share ownership and the wealth that can be acquired through working, through producing and, and making things. And I think the problem, one of the problems we have in, in this country is the growing inequality uh, between those two ways of, of acquiring wealth, which is why... I, and it's not about socialism versus capitalism. I mean, um, I think Dan's absolutely right. It's really about a more efficient form of, of capitalism, which is why I think uh, Yaron is wrong about the minimum wage, for example. The minimum wage shouldn't be seen as some sort of do-gooder welfare um, uh, measure. It's a hard economic measure that prevents the worst form of capitalism and makes competition or slightly tips the balance towards competition by being better rather than being simply cheaper, which is better competition. And that in itself would begin to give people who are working a better opportunity to use their skills and, and, and have a greater share or a greater balance between the income they can generate through working compared to the income through, through share ownership. And it's that inequality that's the problem, and it's that inequality that shouldn't be left unchecked. Hi, my name is Jennifer Grossman. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. So I am another woman here that is, um, uh, I feel, being given a great opportunity to be in a leadership role. And I um, just came from the United States, where we are probably going to have another uh, woman. We're going to have a woman president. We'll be following your, in your footsteps. So I don't quite see the um, the inequality that you are talking about and if we wanted to have more women represented in higher ranks of companies and uh, in politics then they should decide not to have children which I have decided not to do because I wanted to pursue my career and I knew that if I was going to be taking out time to raise my children then I, I would not be judged on the, the, the same um, uh, playing field as other people because I would simply not be bringing the same value to bear. I also um, have to disagree about the minimum wage. I think the only thing that's going to be good that will be coming out of the minimum wage is that we'll probably be having a spur in automation and innovation and technology because those jobs will have to be uh, replaced. We live in a very competitive society and companies are either going to uh, go out of business or they're going to be passing along um, higher prices to uh, to consumers, which um, is going to be, in fact, a, a, a hidden tax on people. And I finally, I don't see your point either about um, the fact that we are not mixing as uh, a society. Um, I have had a positions of having to manage hundreds of people, um, some of whom were menial workers and some of whom were executives. And so, um, but in that kind of voluntary situation and highly competitive situation, everybody was either going to be bringing their best to the game or they were going to be put on the sidelines. So um, the only time that I am in touch with people of a much lower uh, socioeconomic level that I walk away feeling um, less empathy and a lot more resentment is when it's not a voluntary situation, when in fact um, they're getting a benefit that's being forced um, 
taken away from me or taken away from somebody else that's earned it. So, but you're a wonderful public speaker, and I commend you for that. <laughs> Okay, we'll go back to the panel now, and then after that we'll go out for one more round of questions. Culture and economics. If I, if I can afford to go to a fancy restaurant, or, I, or, or choose to go to a fast food restaurant, I mean, is that a cultural or an economic choice? seems to me it's both. If you haven't got enough money to live on, do you resent people on economic or cultural grounds? Maybe both. You know, I, I, I think it's a bit too neat to say it's not about economics, it's cultural. I think they're, they're mixed, and it's hard to separate them. Let me take a, a stab at uh, some of the questions from over here. Uh, first, you can have a personal belief, whatever you want, about the minimum wage. That's like having faith in, in some super being. Uh, no, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the gentleman in the back. Uh, there is a law of economics. It's just like gravity. If you artificially raise a price on a good, if you artificially raise a price on a good, then demand for that good will decline. If you artificially raise the price on labor, the demand for that labor will decline. You want to speed up the robotization, whatever, if that's a word, of McDonald's and Wendy's, great. Raise the minimum wage and those poor inner city youths, which some people here claim to care about, but I really care about. You can laugh. You can laugh because, I mean, this is interesting. If you're white, if you're male, and if you present ideas that are pro-free market, and this will relate to the, the Koch brothers, then you're automatically rich, snobbish, from private schools. You don't know me. You don't know I, I didn't, didn't attend I didn't state that. schools. You did. You talked about, you no, I'm the only one here state from state schools. I said, schools. how often is it? It's well, too, I, too often that that happens. In America, you know, almost all of us are from state schools, yeah, and I'm not even from America. America. And, and, uh, but look, the point is that I do care about those inner city kids, and I know that when you raise the minimum wage, they will never find a job. Unemployment among young black teenagers, and you don't care, among young black teenagers in Chicago is well over 20%, if not 30%. And when they raise the minimum wage to 15%, that unemployment rate will go to 50%. And we won't care because we live in separate neighborhoods and we don't see them, so we ignore that fact. But the cause is your attempt to reduce inequality. It's not, you don't do them any favor by That's, forcing uh, employers to pay a wage that they, cannot, uh, that they cannot justify based on the productivity of labor. And now with regard to the Koch brothers. Can I, I, mean, so yeah, can I just uh, on that though, sure. in the UK with the minimum wage, actually when they raise the minimum wage here, they haven't found those effects. They haven't found that it's impacted employment. So I think you have to be careful there. I mean, I don't know specifically about the examples in the US, but as far as I understand, actually here and in the US, I, from what I understand, it ha we haven't seen that growth in unemployment amongst certain Look, groups. Look, the economic the literature is unequivocal on this issue. It, no, it's it, not. It's not at all. It's not. That's just not true. It is. It's just not true, though. It is. There's one, one study. There's one study. But you're not more than first year economics. We'll you're, go, ignoring, we'll in the you're ignoring the economics literature, the empirical literature in economics. And, but, but, and, Sorry, can, well, I, can we'll I come I, for questions? Paul Krugman, a supporter of the minimum wage, in his textbook in economics, when he wasn't a political hack but actually wrote economics, in his textbook in economics, there's a whole chapter dedicated to the minimum wage, and he says very clearly, this is Paul Krugman, not some radical right winger, he says, 
The minimum wage is purely a political issue. There has never been and cannot be an economic reason to have any minimum wage greater than zero. That's Paul Krugman. But let me, let me address the Koch brothers, because I promised the Krugman. No, no, no. Oh, I'm going to say something. And then presumably we'll get a chance to sum up at yeah, the end yeah, as well yeah. anyway. So I just wanted to say a couple of things. First of all, to, uh, to maybe take a cheap shot at the, uh, I think it was Peter York, who mentioned in a previous session Dark Money, a book by Jane Mayer. Uh, and if you, there, if you look at the FT website, there's actually two reviews of that book. Uh, one by me, which is quite critical, because I thought it was an awful book, and another one which was actually quite positive. But just one cheap shot on that. There's lots of things that could be said uh, about the book, and you can look up my review. But one cheap shot, although absolutely true, is that Jane Meyer talks about the Koch brothers incessantly and all of these other affluent people who uh, back Republican potential Republican candidates for the U.S. presidency... Ironically, I'm not sure if she mentions Trump at all, it, you know, certainly very little, because she wasn't expecting him to be the presidential candidate. Hardly mentions the fact that uh, Hillary Clinton has got a huge amount of you know, support from very wealthy people. For example, the front cover I noticed of Bloomberg Business Week this week uh, is Chaim Saban, who is uh, now an American billionaire, who's lent her uh, his private plane to travel around America uh, for her campaign. So, yeah, maybe it's a cheap shot. It's not a fundamental political point. But if you're going to look at wealthy people backing politicians, Hillary Clinton is very much in that category, uh, as, well, as well as Trump being independently wealthy. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say just very quickly, on social mobility, I think social mobility is really problematic. I wouldn't go as far as the guy at the back talking about rights, but... The whole assumption behind the discussion of social mobility, which is a bit hidden in what Pfizer was saying, is that it essentially assumes that there's very little economic growth or economic growth is static. And in that situation, if you have people going up to the top, then almost by definition, you have other people falling down. Not, I would say not positive at all. It's just sharing out the misery, really. My alternative is economic growth, increasing affluence. And then it's not a zero-sum game. If you have societies becoming a lot more affluent, then at least potentially, and in reality, generally speaking, the whole of society gets a lot more affluent. So if you look at the reality of the world in, the last, in recent decades, hundreds of millions, billions of people have been really raised out of poverty by the process of economic growth. And we shouldn't forget that. That is the fundamental driver of prosperity, people getting better off. Economic growth, that, that is something that is really stigmatised in this society, but we should really, really uphold. Look, it's not a matter of growth or inequality. I mean, we have these conversations sometimes and it, seem, it becomes quite black and white. Of course, you can have growth and have lower levels of inequality, right? Like how you deal with higher levels of growth and then lower inequality at the same time would be a win-win, I would hope. And also there's signs, and the OECD did a study to show that when you have growing levels of inequality, partly because of this talent issue, partly because of the ways in which inequality is grow is captures a lot of underlying issues in the economy, whether that be about debt and financial markets or, or otherwise, when you have higher levels of inequality, you have lower levels of growth. Um, and they were, they were quite clear on that study, and there's now a few studies that join back up that point. So I think it's not a matter of inequality or growth. We should, we should be aiming for both, and I would say we should be aiming for green growth because we don't have an infinite planet, planet, planetary resources. Um, just on a few things, I, I mean, rights, uh, look, the human rights, the, the key of that in that is equality. You don't have equality between groups unless you do something about these huge levels of economic inequality 
I mean, I, I just don't... I, the, I, I, your argument that rights is about freedom, actually levels of economic inequality um, hurt some people's freedom as well. Housing, yeah, so I think there is a big thing now about wealth and, and the way in which, um, you know, people can go to work and they'll come back and they'll earn more on their house than they did in their wage for the day. So essentially what that does, it means that we start putting our money, quite rationally, towards assets. Assets that aren't, we're not doing anything with our house, okay, maybe someone might do it up internally, but it's not creating jobs necessarily, it's not, um, you know, increasing productivity, it's kind of an economic waste in, in a lot of ways. You know, what you want to do is have wealth that creates jobs, that creates innovation, that creates, and that's the thing that's happening that's quite distorting in the economy right now. So when I talk about inequality capturing some of these problems in, in um, the economy, that's one of the things that it's capturing. Um, and certainly that, that should be a focus. Uh, yeah, so my comment is for Dr. Brooke. So I'd like to, to preface this by saying that I largely agree with what you've said, that um, the important uh, pursuit for society is to have a society in which individuals are free to be socially mobile. Um, and I would largely agree with your characterization that the pursuit of equality of outcome is largely a bogus one. Um, however, you've then followed up this comment about social mobility um, with something of a demonization of tax, which um, then brings me to a central issue that we've only touched on here, which is quite central, I think, to this issue of inequality on the whole, which is that of education. Because uh, the assumption you've put forward is that if only we can cut regulations enough, we'll get enough economic growth that we'll have job creation, and that individuals will sort of spontaneously upskill themselves in order to be able to obtain the sorts of jobs that are being created, um, which is evidently not the case, and it's also not the case that everyone is born into a family that can self-fund high levels of education to allow them to obtain the sorts of jobs that are being created. So I'm wondering um, how you can then sort of reconcile these two ideas that we can have no tax revenue, no education subsidization, no loan provision, and also assume that everyone in society will be able to be socially mobile. Yes, I'd like to echo that point. I think uh, Dr. Brooks is highly articulate and uh, perhaps persuasive to some, I feel his view utterly simplistic. I mean, it's a very strange view of society that we have these individual components without any interlinks with anyone else, that they come from nowhere. People come from families, as has been pointed out. People and families have different resources, which they've inherited. They're from, perhaps from robber barons, deep, you know, in their past history, like you were talking about uh, in this culture, earlier on in history. Same applies today. People come from very different backgrounds. They have different opportunities. They have different education. They have different skills, abilities. It's not just individual entities. You give the picture that there are people, they work hard, and if they work hard, they make money. That's a ridiculous notion. It really is a ridiculous notion. And take someone like Bill Gates. Bill Gates didn't make all his money in a vacuum. He depended on living in a society like any wealth creator does. And that society, there's an infrastructure to that society, which they don't pay for. Oh, well, you may say they pay for it, but I don't think they do pay for It's there before they even begin. So people are not these islands uh, completely separated from each other. We live in a society. And thank God I have to say... We live in a welfare society, which I regard as a civilised society. I think it's an achievement of a society becoming civilised. And I rather wish the United States would take that on board. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to echo some of the sentiments that have already been 
expressed. Uh, the, the doctor over there, I, I really love naive liberalism. It's because it's so easy to demolish. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just, one use case, Amazon. Amazon, now, Amazon fantastically a great company. It sells books. It doesn't pay tax. No, no books, no, no education. It depends on literacy. As somebody else said, a, a previous generation. Me, probably, paying my taxes that educated the people that their business model is made on, and yet they don't pay any tax. I, I mean, it, it's, it's just crazily naive to, to assume that. But the trouble with capital, capitalism is very dynamic, but it doesn't deliver all the social capital that you need. It doesn't deliver the roads, it doesn't deliver the schools, it doesn't deliver the courts, it doesn't deliver the, 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 the infrastructure, it, it doesn't deliver the legal system. You need to have, you need all those things placed, and those things have to be paid for. That social capital is used by some of the multinationals, and they're not paying for it. They're stealing from me. I would like Amazon to pay me my money back that it's stolen from me. Let, let me just start by saying, uh, this gentleman here suggests that I represent America in some sense. I wish. Uh, I'm a pariah as much in America as I am here, so don't... <laughs> Don't get any sense that, uh, that this is an American point of view. I wish it was. Um, look, who do you think builds the infrastructure? Who builds the roads? Who pays for the schools? We do. Tax money. And who pays taxes? 40% of all taxes in the United States are paid by the top 10%. 40% are paid. 40% are paid by the top... What's that? I'm not saying... You're saying they don't pay. So the roads, the infrastructure that they use, of course they pay. They're the ones who actually paid for it. It was taken from them. And, and this is why we, who many of us don't pay that much in taxes, we can drive on those roads. Because those rich guys, not only did they give us Amazon, not only did they give us the convenience of using Amazon, not only did they take that money that they made on Amazon and pour it in, not just to books, but into all the other things that you can buy, all the wonderful things, the convenience. My life is a thousand times better because of Amazon. Not only should I resent them for that, God forbid they made my life better, now I need to tax them and take more of their money so that I can, I can build another road, uh, which they're paying for anyway. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just, you don't have an appreciation for what it actually takes to make and build something. And, and to the gentleman before, how many people actually are wealth creators in the United States? I would say an overwhelming majority of the people in the top echelon of billionaires created their wealth. And I'm not going to sit here and defend the, the Koch brothers. If you did your research, you would know this, that they inherited relatively little and have created vast amounts of wealth through their productive ingenuity, which has made Americans better off. And don't ask me to defend Donald Trump, because I will never, ever, ever do that. He's a, he's a, he's a buffoon. Um, so we, we want all the advantages of, we want all the advantages of the Amazons, of the, of the Microsoft, of the Apples, and then we want to hate them. Then we want to, to double down on them and take their wealth away. But we are all sitting here where all our lives are far, far better for those great so-called I mean, this is one of the great injustices of history to call the great entrepreneurs robber barons. They are the ones who made the modern world. We should all be thankful to them. Well, I, I, I rather enjoyed the, the contribution from the gentleman in the front who reminded us, you know, to paraphrase a, a famous quote in this country, that there is such a thing as society. 
And we do live together, whether we like it or not. Uh, and we breathe the same air. And uh, when we leave today, we want the public transport to work. We, do, we want there to be law and order. We want our property rights to be respected. We want our personal space to be respected. You know, there is a social uh, and civil uh, space. And, of course, one thing the robber barons appreciated eventually, once ahead of the original ones, once they created their wealth, was they also wanted a, a stable, law-abiding uh, system and state to operate in and preserve their wealth in. So we, we all come to this realisation sooner or later. And it is one of the reasons why uh, Trump is uh, shaking things up, I guess, so much, because people fear what he might do. So I don't feel when I do my tax return that I'm being mugged or that some sort of theft is taking place. And I don't think that corporations who benefit from the transport system, law and order and educated and healthy workforces and so on, are being uh, despoiled of a share of their profits when they contribute back uh, to the society that we all live in. But look, you can't say this isn't a, a, a subject that doesn't matter or that we're not worried about because we've, this has generated a degree of, uh, of heat and feeling on all sides and, that's, um, and it's been enjoyable and stimulating uh, to hear everyone's contributions. And there are, I think everyone has said this, many more layers to this and subtleties to this than we sometimes allow. And I think that's, that's another reason why we should make the most of these opportunities to really thrash out the, the differences because the two minutes clip in the TV studio uh, does get reduced to something far more simplistic where we actually sometimes find ourselves called into a, a stereotypical and crude view of something which ignores the need for successful businesses, for example, which we do actually need. We need them to pay their tax and we need them to employ people, people, not machines. So uh, thank you for the opportunity and I hope we can all get along. <laughs> Yeah, two points. Uh, first of all, one, I talked about two different conceptions of equality at the beginning. I think one conception of equality I think we should definitely uphold is political equality. In other words, everyone is equal in the political sphere, should have an equal say. Uh, and I think it's a real tragedy that we live in a world where uh, that isn't the case, even on a formal level. You know, we have a situation where a lot of key political decisions are taken out of the gaze of the public where technocracy is really powerful. I would see the EU very much as an example of that. So I would say if you believe in equality, political equality, for one thing, you should be unequivocally against the EU. That's just one example of it. Uh, <laughs> I think... Save that another, to the end. Another, <laughs> another thing, I mean, the one reason I wrote this book, Ferraris for All, was I noticed that all of these apparently independent debates were leading to the same conclusion. In other words, the, the conclusion, not my conclusion, but the conclusion drawn by people in this discussion was that we should make do with less. You know, we should restrain our desires. So, debate about the environment. Somehow, although it appears to be independent, you know, because of climate change, we need to make do with less. Happiness, no one's mentioned it here, people usually mention it. Because of happiness, we need to make do with less. Inequality, there's lots of inequality. I mean, Pfizer played it down, but I think she does fall into this camp. Uh, we've got to, as a whole, you know, make do with less. I think that's a problem. I think when you begin to see the pattern, I think you can see there's a real kind of cultural aversion, certainly among the elites, to mass prosperity. And although I disagree with Yaron on some things on that, I completely agree we really need to fight for and uphold prosperity, particularly in a situation when it's so strongly under attack. Yeah, thank you for your observations about, about women in, in the US. And I would just say, look, just because 
it's great to have a woman president, depending on how you feel about Hillary Clinton. But I mean, um, and it, it was great to have a black president, but does that doesn't mean that the whole situation for, for African-Americans ha, ha, is suddenly sorted. Of course not. I mean, look at what's happened with the Black Lives Matter movement. So yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that that isn't some sign of progress, but that's not the be-all and end-all. And, and that observation of me being on panels is an observation. I've been doing this for a few years, and you guys probably, even over this weekend, have seen there's not enough women, there's not enough... It's just, it's just not happening because, because people aren't... They're not having that voice. There isn't political equality in terms of voice and different people coming forward. You know, when we have... Um, I think it was in total from all parties, something like 35% were privately educated when 7% of the population is privately educated. I mean, of course we're not having political and equality and and that to me is 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 something that we should really be considering and is why one of the reasons why inequality is important um the issue about um whether we mix less or more i mean that was empirically that was taken from a study um the british class study um which was done by oh, i've forgotten mike's mike <coughs> Got his surname um, at LSE, um, but you can have a look at that. The BBC were involved, and, and that's purely taken from that. Savage. One thing. Mike Savage. Yes, Mike Savage. That's it. Um, yeah. So, and let me just end on maybe something on, of, of hope. And um, for me, yeah, inequality is a problem. I I felt it personally, and I think that more and more in society people are waking up to that it's a problem, whether they be economists or looking at it in terms of numbers or whether they be living it or whether they be reading headlines and papers. Um, a study in the US actually found that 92% of Americans preferred the look of a society um, that looked like Sweden's distribution rather than US. 92%. I do think there's something inherent in us and there's like different types of experiments, which are lots of fun to read up on, where they've done uh, experiments on with apes, etc., about our inherent like for more equality, actually. We want to treat each other fairly. Um, and I'll end it there because I think it does, again, for you, each of us, comes back to that question of what we want society to look like. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Ideas podcast. If you would like to listen to more of our podcasts or subscribe to them, go to instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.